I am Joe Poznanski, and with me is Michael Shore. Michael, welcome. Thank you for having me, Joe. You're welcome. You you went back to you went back to traditional. I went back. Well, I went back to technically accurate, right? Based on the song, <laughs> that's the accurate way you are supposed that, to say that. Yeah, that that seems to be the official accurate way to say it. Um, you know, we we were just discussing this as we prepared for for this. Um, we have a lot of segments on this on this podcast now. Lots and lots of segments. The whole thing is just nothing but segments. <laughs> <laughs> I don't I don't know exactly how that happened, but but uh, I think it's probably better for us that way. We just we're moving. We're not doing exactly what we're doing now. Just talking about nothing. We're we're moving to segments about nothing. That's which right. I think is is way better. Yeah, it's it's better when you're do, when you're doing something meaningless. It's better to have the meaninglessness broken up into small sort of bite-sized nuggets that people can take individually. Like if you just want a little bit of meaninglessness, you have like a little packet that you can then take and then sort of engage with how meaningless it is. Or if you want to just be generally meaningless, you can just sort of absorb all of the individual packets as one collective. True. Yeah. But this way, we're not just we're not we're not just throwing you in to an ocean of meaninglessness. We are, we are, we are breaking up. So we're, th- we're throwing you into several different lakes. of meaninglessness. <laughs> this sort of, this sort of how I like to, yeah. to view it. Uh, and so, so we're going to go right to it. Cause we've got, li- we have like six segments now. So which is just crazy. Great. Uh, and we're going to start with, uh, of course the Yankee minute. Yankee minute. This week is going to focus entirely on one player, and 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 I'm going to allow you to introduce the player because it is very clear, as people who listen to the Yankee Minute understand, there's something very specific about the Yankees that drives us insane, and it's not it's it is that they're that they're so good and that their fans have so much joy and and that they represent pure evil and all of those things that that are sort of in the larger sense but there's like a smaller thing that is that is sort of represents what the Yankees are and it is that players come along who should not be any good at all and then they put on those 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 absurd pinstripes and and something happens so I'm going to let you introduce our Yankee minute uh, player of the week yeah, that's right. So the complaint here, uh, and it's hard to tell, it sure doesn't seem like it's recency bias or purely anecdotal. It sure seems like it's statistically verifiable. The complaint is exactly that. It's that every year there's like four guys who pop into the Yankee lineup at some point. You've never heard of them. They do incredible things, and then they just are gone. They, <laughs> they're, <laughs> they're mirages. Yeah, and, uh, the the number to... one all-time version of this was, uh, what's his name? Aaron Small, Aaron, was that his name? Aaron Guile. No, was that the, the pitcher who went like 12-0 and 0 that year? Oh, 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 oh that guy. Yeah. Uh, no, I was actually thinking about, do you remember when Aaron Guile showed up on the Yankees for no reason whatsoever and then like hit <laughs> a series of home runs? He came from the Royals and he was, you know, he was not all that good. He was actually not very good at all. And then he suddenly went to the Yankees and like for, three weeks was 
on you couldn't get him out for three weeks. Yeah. And then and then that's it. That was he never played baseball again. I mean, in, in the major leagues. That was yeah. that was his no, last I'm, stretch. I'm talking about a decade ago when Aaron, I think his name was Aaron Small, was like a spot starter for the Yankees when they had a bunch of injuries to whoever it was, Hideki Arabu or whoever. And I believe I could be wrong. I'm not. I'm doing this from memory, but I believe at one point he was 12 and 0 was a no, pitcher. No, I know wins aren't everything, but no, he was no. a he was a minor league spot starter who went 12 and 0. <laughs> it was um, 10 and 0. And then just, yeah, okay, 10 and 0. There you go. And then just washed out of baseball forever. It was just gone. <laughs> so, ladies and gentlemen, uh, if you're not familiar with the 2018 New York Yankees, allow me to introduce Luke Voigt. <laughs> <laughs> Luke Voigt is 6'3", 225. He bats and throws right. He was He's 27 years old. Right. He went to Missouri State University. He was drafted by the St. Louis Cardinals, a team, by the way, known for developing good baseball players. Yes. Uh, in fact, the other team, you would say, that is constantly filling its major league roster with guys you've never heard of who then do amazing <laughs> things, right? That's he's right. A 20, so he was a 22nd round pick. Uh, and originally by the uh, Cardinals, and then by the then he went back into the draft and went to the Royals, and then blah 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 blah. The point is Luke Voigt, um, basically he so he he joined uh, the Palm Beach Cardinals rookie ball in 2014, and he he pretty good numbers. He had like a 784 OPS, and they promoted him in 2016 to their Double A franchise. He had an 849 OPS. Pretty good, nice. right? Very, very nice. Then, he, then in 2017, he goes to the PCL, which is a famously, I believe, a famously good hitters minor league. It is. But at the PCL with the Memphis Redbirds, he has a 972 OPS. So this kid's raking, right? And he's yes. like a catcher, and if he's a big guy, catcher, first baseman. He gets a cup of coffee with the Cardinals that year and, uh, you know, hits four home runs in uh, whatever, 62 games. So not great, but, you know, whatever, not bad. Inexplicably, out of nowhere, for no reason, this year, the St. Louis Cardinals dump him on the Yankees for previous podcast favorite Yankee, Chasen Shreve. Chasen Shreve. A, a man whose name is both a complete sentence and also a meaningless sentence because it's, it sounds like if you asked an old like hippie what he's doing this week, his answer would be, I'm just Chasen Shreve, baby. Right? <laughs> So Chase and Shreve, who was not a good pitcher at all, no, um, though he was briefly a very good pitcher for the Yankees, annoyingly. <laughs> <laughs> but the the Cardinals flip him to the Yankees for Chase and Shreve. He shows up on the Yankees, and what does he do but mash the ball? He has a thousand OPS for the Yankees in twenty three games. He hit cleanup in this lineup. He hit cleanup for the Yankees a couple games ago. He has seven home runs and seventy four at bats. Uh, he is he's his slash numbers are 324, 383, 622. <laughs> he has a thousand OPS for the and and they just what and then next year he'll be gone. The, you just you'll never see you'll never hear from him again. He won't have a long career, he won't like suddenly become a a steady bat in any lineup. You will never hear from Luke Voigt again. He'll go here's what's going to happen the Yankees will non tender him after the year, he will sign a one year. Three million dollar deal with the Milwaukee Brewers. Right. He will get hurt in May, and you will never hear from him again. <laughs> but right now, he is absolutely key to the Yankees' drive to the World Series. It's it's really it's staggering. It's staggering how they keep they keep doing these things. Luke Voigt. Um, by the way, that trade was like I think they basically made that trade 
so that the Yankees could get a little more international slot money. I think that's like that's why that deal was made. I believe I don't you're think right. Yes. Players were all just like, you know, whatever. Okay, throw Luke Voigt, that sounds like a cool name and whatever. And uh how do they how does this happen? How does this happen? And then and then I guess if you're a Yankee fan listening to this, which why would you if you were? But if you are a Yankee fan, that welcome, by the way. Um <laughs> our first Yankee fans. Thank you for joining us. <laughs> so so if you're Seppenwall. You you've got to ask. Well, why don't these guys stay good? They it's not like they 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 all have like those incredible. I mean, this goes back decades, right? This goes back to like the Mike Paglia Rulos of the world, right? Who just showed up and and suddenly who? What was the other guy's name? Uh, Shane uh, Spencer, Shane Spencer, right? Right. It's like they, you just come in and then they're incredible for two weeks, two months, whatever it is, some period of time, and then they're that's it. But there is like this little like burst of of like energy or joy or glory or something that happens to them when they join the Yankees. I don't get it. What what is this dark magic? Wasn't there wasn't Shane Spencer like a postseason hero one year? Like there was some I think it was ninety eight, maybe he had like a clutch or maybe yeah, he had like a he had like a clutch home run in like one of the playoff series early on. I just remember him like running around the bases and thinking like pumping his fist and just thinking to myself, I will never see you again. (laughs) You've hit a, you've hit a home run in the, in a clutch home run in a playoff series for the Yankees. They're going to shake your hand and pat you on the butt and send you on your way. And you'll never be heard from again. (laughs) And you'll, and some team will excitedly sign you and and it won't work out. That team, by the way, was the Indians. He signed with the, I'm looking at him now. So Shane Spencer played for, I, I, I could be totally wrong, but was Shane Spencer a replacement player? Wasn't there some? Oh, that might be right. There was some that, kind that of controversy with right. him where like he was a replacement player and he never really was given full kind of like MLB union status or something. But um, yeah, he was on the 98 and 2000 and 2001 Yankees. So he's got, he's got three rings. This guy. <laughs> look, look, look at him in 98. So that, of course, that 98 team there, you know, they, they won 100 and whatever, 14 game. They never, you know, they, they never lost basically the whole year. And, and they were unbelievable. Shane Spencer, 26 year old Shane Spencer just shows up in 1998, hits 373, 411, 910. 910 slugging percentage. That's right. In <laughs> with, 73 plate appearances in the year 1998, Shane Spencer hit 10 home runs. 10 that's insane and then just he just joined it like that entire team was so ridiculous but Shane Spencer just jumps onto the team at age 26 hits 10 home runs in whatever 15 games or something and then they win the World Series and then they win again in 2000 and 2001 and then he signs with the Indians in 2003 no I guess he was traded I can't figure out what happened here uh, whatever, 761 OPS with the Indians, uh, oh, 675 OPS with the Rangers, 742 yep. OPS with the poor Mets. Oh, the Mets, that's so sad. The Mets were like, give us some of that magic, Shane Spencer. And he was like, no. And then he's gone. He retired from baseball forever. It's so classic. By the way, you are right. In that uh, his first uh, division series he played against the Rangers, he hit 500 with two home runs in the two games that he played. <laughs> 
Yes, this is um this is a, a an if you're not an obsessive Yankee hater the way you and I are, you might not know this, but the Yankees every year it seems have seven dudes who show up out of nowhere, do outrageous things and then just disappear. And it and it's like at some point you start to just think like, well, they're uh they're like vampires or they're ghouls or they're some they're robots or something because they're suspiciously they just disappear forever and you and after like winning basically winning games and postseason series for the Yankees it's uh the of the many infuriating things about this franchise it's maybe my number one I think so too I think it's very high up and by the way if this continues the, we will begin to call these players voids. They're, they're voids. <laughs> oh, that's just a great idea. Yes, yeah, so of course that's what it is. They just show up. They just show up out of nowhere. Oh, look, another void. Okay, just and, and for, the, for the record here, just so just to get this on the record, Aaron Small, um, here are Aaron Small, uh, who I mentioned before, um, he was like, you know, one and three for Oakland in 96. He was actually nine and five for Oakland the next year. Uh, in 98, he was one and one with a 7.25 ERA. In 98, with Arizona, he was three and one with a 3.69 ERA and 31 innings. These are all like, you know, 30, 60 innings, blah, blah, blah. Uh, in right. 2004, with Florida, he threw, he threw in seven games, he pitched 16 innings and gave up 15 runs in an 8.27 ERA. <laughs> well, and that's after, by the way, not pitching in the big leagues in that, 99, 2000, 2001, and 2003. That's right. He so, wasn't like, even in baseball. So that he, he makes a comeback in uh, at age 32 with the Marlins, gives up 15 runs in 16 innings, has a uh, 8.27 ERA. The next year, the Yankees pick him up out of nowhere. Here, here are his stats at age 33 after being out of baseball for three, four of, wait, Five of the previous six years, something like that. He's ten and zero with a three twenty ERA. He starts nine games. He pitches seventy six innings and gives up seventy one hits. He has a uh, he has somehow strikes out thirty seven and walks twenty four. So he struck out no one, walked almost as many people, uh, and yet he had a, a one twenty five WHIP and uh, and that you know and, and was ten and zero. And then the next year. He's 0 and 3 with an 8.46 ERA in 27 <laughs> innings, and he's gone from baseball forever. Oh, it's just how do they find these I people? I don't know, it's man. It's it's so, so infuriating. infuriating. It's just oh, it's amazing. All right, so this week Luke Voigt gets to be our uh, focus of our Yankee Minute, and we go right from one segment to, of course. The uh, checking in on Scooter Jeanette. Checking in on Scooter Jeanette. Scooter. Okay, so so to remind you, uh, we are we are hoping for our guy Scooter Jeanette to achieve the scooter, which is. <laughs> I'd love saying it every time we do it. Fifteen double plays. Right. 25 homers, 35 doubles, and uh, 45 walks. That is right. that is the scooter. As everyone knows, even As the casual knows. sports fan knows that's the scooter. And and I will say that we will we will catch up on scooter, uh, and then I will catch you up because I have now done the research to tell you wh- who are the all time scooter leaders in fantastic. Industry, so, um, it has been a pretty good couple of weeks. It really scooter has. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. He is he is possibly closing in. So 
The double plays, he is in great shape. He has 13 double plays, uh, so only needs two more. Uh, you know, and it, it's not, it's not a guarantee. We're we're only you know whatever 15, 20 games away from the end of the year, but but he's got a shot. He's got a very good shot there. He's been hitting the ball with some pop, so he's up yep. to twenty two home runs. So that there's a real chance for thirty for twenty five homers. So he's got an excellent chance there. Doubles going to be tough. He's he's had a decent doubles a uh, couple of weeks. He's up to twenty nine. Boy, six more doubles in the last however many games. It's going to be hard. That's going to be tough, but not impossible. Could have a four-double day, Scooter Jeanette, for crying out loud. And uh, <laughs> and then the irony of these things is the toughest one is going to be walks. He has that's 37 right. walks. He needs eight more walks to uh, to fully achieve the Scooter. And uh, boy, it's going to be tough. He doesn't walk. He just no, doesn't walk. He sure doesn't. Yeah, <laughs> he's one walk away from his career high, which is yes. 38. Yes. Uh, and uh, it do, it's not looking good. Although I got to say 15 double plays, 25 homers and 35 doubles would be would be great. Like be it's great. not it's three fourths of a scooter. It's not a full scooter. But like I, I thought a week, two weeks ago, I thought there was no chance. I thought right. we were dead in the water. But then he kind of turned it up a notch. I remember <laughs> screenshotting a uh, and it, an update of him grounding into a double play and excitedly texting it to you. <laughs> yes. Well, here's the thing in the last, uh, in the last, I guess since August 18th, if you want to go back there, uh, he's been hitting 350. He's got four doubles, four homers. Um, and, uh, and so he's, and he's grounded into uh three double play. So he's, I mean, he's had a really he, good th- three weeks. Here's what that says to me. He knows what's at stake, right? <laughs> He knows, like, the red season is lost. The only thing to play for now is the scooter. So that's, like, he, he gets it. Scooter well, gets it. And he, he knows, he, he's like a guy who is, the, who is the basketball player who threw the ball off of his own backboard to get a 10th <laughs> rebound so he could have a triple-double. Oh, <laughs> yeah, he's that no, guy. He's the guy, well, I think the manager's going to move him up in the lineup in order to get him the most opportunities he can get. Of course, although he's got to he's got to have a man on base to be able to hit into that double play. But I think you got to um, you got to move him behind Votto. You know what I mean? Like yeah, that yeah. you need Votto to cuz Votto's going to walk a bunch. So you need to you, he needs to be hitting behind Votto so that he comes up a lot with Votto on first base. That's the only way this is going to work. <laughs> the only way it's going to work. By the way, in those 20 games that he's he's had a very nice uh, scooter run. Uh, four walks, only four walks, even yeah. in that time period. So, all right. So let's hear the research. Here's the research. So this is great. So this is all time, and and what the the information I've gotten before is wrong because of course double plays only became an official statistic uh, fairly recently. So, uh, well, not recently, but but not there was no double play for Babe Ruth or Ty Cobb or guys like that. Um, Albert Pujols is the all time leader in uh, scooters with ten. Uh, which wow. makes perfect sense. Per- it really ten does. Yeah. Scooters, ten. He's, he's he's basically like designed in a lab to to scooter every year. <laughs> what a career! What I mean to be able to look back and go, I yeah, ten scooters. I mean Henry Aaron didn't have ten scooters. I mean that's that's amazing. That's amazing. Second on the list is Miguel Cabrera with eight scooters, which okay. is amazing. Uh, Manny Ramirez with six scooters is third. He is tied with Albert Bell. That Cleveland team of the 90s, that was a scootering team right there. They really were. They they scootered scootered all the way to the World Series. (laughs) 
<laughs> and then scootered their way out of the World Series. That's, That's right. exactly how that worked. <laughs> David Ortiz, Vlad Guerrero, Cal Ripken Jr. with five, and then with four, Mark Teixeira, Jeff Kent, Jeff Bagwell, Hank Aaron. I mean, these are great players. These are This is a Hall of Fame list. I mean, every <laughs> player on that list is either in the Hall of Fame or probably should be, right? Except for yeah, Teixeira. Say, Teixeira is, uh, will fall short. but He's going to fall short. But I would say that you have to go really far down the list to find uh, a player who was not who you would not consider an excellent player. Because you would consider, I mean, we wouldn't consider Teixeira an excellent player because he's a Yankee. But, but he obviously was an excellent player just the same. Don Mattingly's on this list. Uh, Kyle Seeger. Uh, Paul Goldschmidt. I mean, these are these are really good players. You have to go down all the way down to probably Carlos Lee. Uh, and Garrett Atkins, both those guys had two uh, scooters, and 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 Aubrey Huff also had two scooters. Those guys were not bad players. No, no. Carlos but, Lee had like four really good years. Do yeah. You, um, let me ask you a question: the the who is the player that you are the most surprised is not like a multiple scooter? Because I have Jim a couple Rice. in my head, like Jim Rice. I can't Jim believe Rice. Jim Rice wasn't like four or five scooters yes. deep. One one scooter for Jim Rice, which wow. is is stunning it's where stunning. did he fall short uh you know it's funny because i think we've talked about this in jim rice's the year that he did scooter um it was the double plays that that was that he only had huh. 15 double plays that year um later on it was like you know 35 home runs i mean 25 home runs he fell short one year on 25 home runs he had 20 home runs in 1986 uh when he when he finished third in the mvp voting uh had everything else but didn't have the uh, the home runs and then uh, in 83, oh, just a heartbreaking scooter <laughs> year. Uh, in 83, had uh, 39 homers, uh, had 50, 31 uh, ground and double play. So really scootered there. Whoa. Um, 52 walks, but 34 doubles. So oh. one double shy of the scooter in 83. Oh, 80. that hurts. <laughs> I, bet, I, bet he, I bet he thought about that the entire offseason. Well, I think he did. I think he, he, you know, like he told reporters again and again, you know, like, oh, next year, you, you know, I'm really going to work on my speed and 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 you know, get that one extra double, you know. Yeah. That, For a it, while, he did, he wouldn't even talk about it. He was like, guys, I can't. I well, can't. I think he painful. was re- he was really upset because he had one triple that year, and it was one of those he probably should have stopped at. Oh shit! <laughs> <laughs> I was also surprised there was no like Willie Stargell or. You know, or some of those guys, those seventies power hitters. When yeah, when did the double play start getting counted? Oh, in the fifty, forties, thirties. Okay. I mean, yeah, yeah. So, yeah I mean, like the, some of those seventies, those those big. Stargell, Stargell had none. Stargell never had a scooter, and uh, uh, Dave Parker only had one. You would that was the other guy that I was surprised yeah. about. Dave Parker only had one. Dave Winfield only had one. Um, but you know, I mean. Back then, twenty-five homers was like a thing, and thirty-five about, doubles is legit. I mean, that's a, that's a legit big-time year to have thirty-five doubles. What about Juan Gon or any of those like the guys who you know Pudge? Where they where <laughs> I, do they fall short? Let's see if we have an, any Ivan Rodriguez's. No, no Ivan Rodriguez's. So, wow. uh, Juan Gonzalez had one in his MVP season of ninety-eight. I mean, it's weird, but this scooter tends to correlate with extremely good players and extremely good seasons, which I guess yeah. stands to reason because except for the double plays, you're, you know, you're talking about home runs, doubles and uh, and walks. So it stands right. to reason. But I oh. feel like we accidentally, this is like Voros McCracken <laughs> discovering the thing about how pitchers can't control balls put in play. I feel like we've accidentally stumbled on 
a way to to like demarcate a great a truly great offensive year. Yes. No, I think there's there is something look other than the walks but but by the way in 98 when he had it he barely made the walks. He only had 46 walks Whoa. that year. Yeah, and nine of them were intentional. So, uh he didn't walk. Juan Gan didn't walk, which is why you look back at Juan Gan's MVP years and he's he's always well shy of like the war leader that year. Like he never should have won any MVP awards, but the reason is because he didn't walk. His on-base percentages were just okay. And he hit with a lot of power. He didn't play good defense either. So he hit with a lot of power and he and he and he uh you know the the numbers are staggering. I mean 98, he hit 318, slug 630, hit 50 doubles, 45 homers, drove in 157 RBIs. I realize those are old school stats, uh particularly RBIs, but you can't look at 157 RBIs and not have your mind, your eyes open up just a little bit, right? I mean, that's yeah. Although it, just that era was so stupid. It was stupid. <laughs> it was stupid. It was stupid, and he absolutely that was that was one of the absurd, absurd years uh, for him to win the MVP because '98. I mean, that's that's that was that was the Yankee, you know, in all their glory. And I, how in the world? I mean, I don't think. Jeter, I mean, probably the, the best player in baseball in the American League that year was A-Rod. But um, how does Derek Jeter now? I mean, from a from a purely pop culture perspective, how does Derek Jeter not win the MVP in 98? He had an incredible year for by far the best team, and he was by far the most famous player. How how did he not win the MVP award? It doesn't, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. Well, that was the that was like the old that was still old world thinking, right? That was yeah, still like yeah. It was still sort of like, um, you know, what matters is home runs and RBI. And so yeah. you get you get, if you look at that year, like Nomar finished second that year. He Juan Gon had had a four point nine WAR according to Baseball Reference. Nomar was seven one. Jeter, yes. who oh. finished third, was seven point five. Right. Ken Griffey Jr. was six and a half. Mo Vaughn was five and a half. I mean, you have to get so Juan Gonzalez finished first, and. Then the the person on the ballot who had the first person who had a lower war than he did was Tom Gordon, who finished 13th. <laughs> Every single player from two to 12 had a higher war than the guy yeah. who won the award. It's insane. Yeah. And the crazy yeah. here's the crazy thing. And I know that like whatever those Texas teams were insane. But look at look at Griffey. If even if you're an old school voter, Griffey had more scored more runs had 13 fewer hits, who cared? Had 11 more homers and 11 right. fewer RBIs, who cares? Had 18 more stolen bases, had 30 more walks. I mean, it, what do you, and his OPS was essentially identical. It was 20 points, it was 997 to 977. How do you not vote for Griffey? And it's because I'm sure, and without looking it up, that Rangers finished first in the division. It was, that's like the dying embers, the late 90s, early 2000s. It's the yes. dying embers of the, um, stupid backwards uh, voting system. It's uh, just oh, crazy. Yeah. yeah, if we needed to add another segment to the to the podcast, which we do not, it would be like we would pick an MVP year because as crazy as 98 is, look at 1996, which was the first year that Juan Gonzalez won the MVP award. It is one of the most ludicrous. It's, it's, it is, you it's look hilarious. back on it, inexplicable. <laughs> yeah. It's in it, no matter how, you could, you could think as old school as you possibly want to think it is inexplicable that Juan Gonzalez won the MVP yes, award. Yes, really quickly I'll run through it. Juan <laughs> Gonzalez had 3.8 war and A-Rod had 9.4. <laughs> 
Um, Look what Griffey had. A Rod had yeah, Griffey Griffey had nine seven. So A Rod, who finished second in the voting, it was in a very it was two ninety to two eighty seven in points, which is crazy. Right. Um, a Rod had uh, played in more games, had what is it fifty more runs scored, forty five <laughs> more hits, eleven fewer home runs, which and and twenty one fewer RBI, which is why he lost. Thirteen right. more stolen bases, fourteen more walks. He had a forty-four point higher batting average. <laughs> he had a forty-six point higher OBP. He had a, a twelve fewer points of slugging, but thus a higher OPS. He was better in every single category, essentially, than than the winner. The other crazy and, thing about and this he played is shortstop. By the way, he and played shortstop. That's right. Shortstop. He played yeah. a good shortstop instead of a terrible <laughs> left field or whatever. But here, here's the, this is the insane thing about this year. So there are one, two. So Juan Gon, A Rod, Albert Bell, Ken Griffey Jr., Mo Vaughn, Mark McGuire, Frank Thomas, Brady Anderson, and Jim Tomei in the American League alone had a thousand OPS seasons. Oh yeah, <laughs> and then. And then uh, between 900 and 1,000, you add Rafael Palmeiro, you add Chuck Knobloch, you add Jay Buhner and Bernie <laughs> Williams and Roberto Alomar. Terry Steinbach had an 871 OPS that year. This is, I mean, this is truly insane. When oh, you insane. get down to like, this is the Brady Anderson year of 50 homers and 110 RBI. He, he hit 50 homers and, uh, and at a six, 6.9 war and finished ninth in the MVP voting. <laughs> That's that's what's so amazing about the year. That's why it's my favorite MVP year in the sense of so so. Let's say you just you throw everything out the window and you go, okay, well look, I mean Juan Gonzalez hit three fourteen with forty seven homers, one hundred forty four RBIs, four five guys, four guys hit more home runs in yeah. the American League than he did, and what three of them, three or four of them, no. Uh, no, one, only one. Albert Bell is the only one that had more RBIs than he did. But Mo Vaughn was, fell one short. Rafael Palmeiro was two short. Ken Griffey was four short. I mean, they were all, they all had 140 RBIs. Everybody in the whole freaking American League had a, Jay Buhner had 138 RBIs. That's that the year. craziest thing about this year to me. <laughs> Jay Buhner had almost the same exact year that Juan Gonzalez had. Juan Gonzalez had 3.8 war. Jay Buhner had 3.5. Um, Jay Buhner scored more runs. He had he had 44 homers and Juan Gunn had 47. He had 138 RBI and Juan Gunn had 144. It's the same year. He actually same walked year. 84 times and Gonzalez only walked 45 times. And yet Jay Buhner finished 17th in the MVP voting and Juan <laughs> Gonzalez won it. It's crazy. Baseball was so insane for so long. It was insane. It's gotten so much better. I feel like there's a chance. You know, I thought that the year that... Um, that uh, King Felix won the Cy Young Award when he had only won 12. He only had 12 wins or whatever. I was like, okay, that's we're done with this now with the old stupid way of looking at things. And I believe that I was right. I think that we're, we are pretty much done with it. I think DeGrom might win the NL Cy Young this year with like nine wins. And I think that'll be even a new watershed of like how, how uh, much better baseball is at evaluating its players. But when you go back and look, this is not that long ago. I was a fully formed adult when this stuff was happening. And it was so crazy. It was just crazy. By the way, for since you mentioned it, uh, if uh, you go to The Athletic, uh, you can find a uh, piece I wrote about Jacob deGrom and how this Mets season, this season that deGrom is having, like this could only happen to the Mets. We talk about how like Luke Voigt can only happen to the Yankees. 
to have this season because this season is is does remind you of like there there are Felix Hernandez seasons like this and others that have had incredible years. But when you really really break it down, this is like the quintessential Mets season the the season Degrom's having. So that is over at the Athletic. All right, we have to go on to our next segment because we have so many segments we have to hit uh, because we are bringing back as as you would expect uh, our Cleveland Browns update. <laughs> Because you have to bring back the Cleveland Browns update because this will be the first Cleveland Browns update in, I don't know if we've ever, have we ever had a non-loss Cleveland Browns update? We were doing the Cleveland Browns update when they actually won that last game Christmas of 2015, 16 or whatever that was, right? Were we doing it then? I mean, to to be totally honest, I think I've sort of emotionally blocked out all of our previous Browns (laughs) updates. So I have no. So memory. let's call this the first one we've done as a non-loss. Great. Let's check in on the Cleveland Browns. How are they doing? That game was so stupid. That game was so <laughs> stupid and so bad. It was such a bad football game. I think all football games. So, so I really want to use this Browns update to. Um, to bring up a point that our friend Tommy Tomlinson uh, has made, which I don't know if you have you heard about the three true football outcomes. No. So this is a a Tommy Tomlinson idea, which is so smart. Of course, everybody knows the three true up to, uh, three true outcomes in baseball: the the hit, the the homer, the walk, the strikeout. Right. Right. So his idea of the football NFL three true outcomes are plays that end in a penalty. Plays that end in a uh, replay, plays that end in an injury. Like that, those <laughs> those are the only three outcome. Those are the three true outcomes of the NFL. And I was watching it yesterday, and he's he's one hundred percent right. Every single play ends with one of those things, and if it doesn't, you you like celebrate for about four seconds because the next play will end with one of those things. Yeah, I mean. This is my, um, you know, again, just to remind everybody, I am a, I'm, I bring nothing to the table for the Browns. I have no connection to the Browns positively or negatively. I tried last year, I guess, to jump on board the Browns bandwagon and root for them. And after one and a half games, I completely gave up <laughs> because it's just too, I was like, what am I doing to myself? I have children. This isn't fair. Um, so I did like get a little bit interested because you and I were texting during the game and I sort of like, Start. I don't watch the games anymore, but I followed it on uh, on my computer as I was working. And you live texted the blocked field goal, which was uh, which was wonderful. But um, this is this is the conclusion I came to, and I don't think this is revelatory at all. I think I'm basically what I'm about to do is rephrase everything you've ever said and written about the Browns. But it, it sort of struck me in a new context, which was the result of the new England Patriots game yesterday was they were up, they were playing the Texans at home and they were up by two touchdowns. And then late in the game with like five minutes left or something or four minutes left, the Texans, they forced a punt and the Texans punted and the Patriots muffed the punt and the Texans recovered at like the 20 yard line. And then they scored a touchdown. And the outcome of that game was never in doubt. Like right. it was, ne- it was like the, the way that the Patriots have maintained this insane 20 year almost run of, of extraordinary droning excellence is they have made it so that you have to be perfect to beat them. They, that you, 
even when it, uh, when things don't go their way, because football is a stupid game and the ball bounces stupidly and stupid things happen and <laughs> penalties are called for no reason or they're not called for no reason or the ball gets wet and slips out of someone's hands or in the first quarter, uh, I think of the Patriots game, the uh, a, a Tom Brady pass was tipped at the line and floated up into the air and was intercepted and like that stuff just happens. There's no, there's, there's no way to not have that stuff happen. And right. so right. the Patriots have, have won, you know, whatever it is, 80% of their games by just eliminating the controllable error and making it so that you have to play perfectly. And so that when you don't play perfectly, they capitalize in a way that you can't capitalize when they don't play perfectly. I don't know how they've done it. I'm again, I'm not, I'm not saying anything. Anybody has said a million times. However, I believe that basically what the Browns are is a bizarre world negative mirror image of the Patriots because yesterday the Browns at home uh, won the turnover battle by five. They five. had five yep. more turnovers. They yep. the, the the Steelers had five more turnovers than the Browns, and yet they still could only manage a tie. And it's so it's like they the Browns are the anti-Patriots. The Browns are like, you can do whatever you want. That's stupid. You can throw four interceptions and have two fumbles and strip sacks, and you can muff punts and you can do anything you want. You can try as hard as you can to give the Browns the victory, and the Browns still will not take the victory. No, they cannot take it. They cannot take it. They, this was so so guess what year? Think of the year that this would have happened. Think of the year, the last time a team had 12 penalties in a game and six turnovers. So we're not even talking about turnover differential. Just those two things. The last time a team had six turnovers in a game and 12 penalties and did not lose the game. Think when when do you think the last time that happened? I mean, I'll I'll take a I'll say 1967. Yeah, 1954 <laughs> would be the last time that that happened. Last time that happened, 1954. It's impossible. It is impossible to not win a game on the road. By opponent. the way, they were on All the right. road. It, on the road. So it is impossible to be at home, have the other team commit six turnovers and 12 penalties for 100 plus yards, and not win. It's like it's almost it's almost impossible to do that. And here's the thing: Browns absolutely could have won that game. They had a field goal with 13 seconds left. The one that I, that I uh, was live texting right. to you as we were going, they had a field goal, 43 yard field goal, makeable, obviously um, to win the game with 13 seconds left. But if you're a Browns fan, you can't even point to that because 90 seconds earlier, the Steelers had a 43 yard field right. goal to win the game and they missed it. So they actually had the first chance to do that. The Browns should have lost that game by three touchdowns, at least. And if that's with the Steelers making, you know, what would be considered a normal number of mistakes, yeah. right? And, and penalties. The, the Browns were were three touchdowns worse than that Steelers team. That said, I came out of that game feeling pretty good. <laughs> 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 there were some there were some good signs. I I Denzel Ward, you know, we've talked about Denzel Ward because the Browns took him with the fourth overall pick and and there were a lot of uh sort of draft nicks out there that said, you know, hey, that's he's a good player, but that was too early for them to take him and you and I said on this podcast that hey, get the player you want. We don't care where he was supposed to go. 
Denzel Ward is the real thing. I mean, he was he had two interceptions yesterday and played out of his mind. And Miles Garrett's just unblockable. So there were exciting things for Browns, and not necessarily on offense, but but in general, there were exciting things about this Browns team. And now we move to what I think is the next phase of Browns fanhood where we are stupefied that Hugh Jackson keeps coaching this team. Yeah. Well, there's an intermediary phase there, which is that you're stupefied that uh, Tyrod Taylor's the starting quarterback instead of (laughs) Baker Mayfield. Right. And and there will be a point in this season. That is first. There will be a point in this season, probably where Hugh Jackson is fired. There will also probably be a point where someone, either Hugh Jackson or his successor starts Baker Mayfield. And at that point, it starts to become like, this is the beginning, right? This is the, right. we right. are now saying you, they have legit players on defense. They drafted a quarterback number one overall. And that quarterback, in, at least in preseason, like did some cool stuff. And that quarterback yeah. is like a, has a certain attitude that the Browns haven't had in a really long time, which is a super macho manly. I've got this jump on my back kind of attitude. And who knows whether it'll work or not, but at some point that guy's going to play. And at some point this team is going to like enter the actual next phase. They've been in phase one of a rebuilding (laughs) since the moment that it was announced that the franchise was returning to Cleveland. They've been in phase one. It's been a 20 year phase one of, (laughs) of rebuilding and they're about to enter phase two this year, 2018, they enter phase two. No, that's right. I think that's right. So we are, we're sort of floating, well, and I, and I'm as a Browns fan, by the way, I fully accept this. I fully accept this that that this is going to be sort of a uh, we'll be in like this limbo period where you know Hugh Jackson will be coaching the team and and you know maybe they'll win a few games and I, you know he, he could save his job, I guess. But none of us really think when when the Browns match up week in week out, none of us are thinking, boy, I'm sure glad we have Hugh Jackson on our side to prepare for this game. Nobody feels that way about the guy, whether you like him or not. Uh, so, so at some point they'll probably move on from there at some point for sure, you know, to Rod Taylor, Tyrod Taylor, however he pronounces his name, which is multiple ways. Um, you know, he's at least a pro, he, you know, he can run the ball a little bit. He was terrible yesterday, but, but he can, he, he did play with some, with some, some guts and whatever, you know, at some point he'll he'll move on, uh, and and then we'll go with Baker Mayfield. Probably when he gets hurt is probably when it'll happen. Yeah, that's right. Um, because he does run the ball a lot. Um, but anyway, but uh, I gotta say, probably the most successful Browns update in a long time, just because they didn't lose. It's by the way, how depressing is it that there was a and and I wrote about this in the Athletic as well. Uh, but there was whatever you call that little line thing that they have on the bottom of ESPN, you know, that little yeah. update, the, the whatever ticker thing. Yeah. Ticker thing. They said uh, Browns uh, tie Pittsburgh. Oh, uh, so and then, you know, had Browns 0 and one their record. And then in parentheses, best start for Browns since 2004. <laughs> not great is it that's not great they haven't won a season opener since 2004 since 2004 oh my god it's unbelievable unbelievable there was there they didn't have there was no iphone in 2004 they have not they have not won a season opener still in the iphone generation smartphone era (laughs) they have their own 14 and (laughs) one 
<laughs> oh, it's incredible. Incredible. Ooh. All right. Next segment. We move right on into our uh, uh, movie time, sports movie time segment. Our segment this week, and we'll, we'll keep this one a little shorter because we can never match the epic sports movie time segment last of last week when Nick Offerman went through his um, uh, many, many, many thoughts on uh, Field of Dreams. Yeah. Was that amazing? That was incredible. That was wonderful. Uh, it was. Uh, it, it turned out, it hadn't even occurred to me, but it turned out there was no better person on earth to critique that movie. <laughs> a professional actor who was also raised on a farm is just about the best possible person to, to oh, level the worked out. Field of Dreams. Could not have worked out better. Of course, I'd love to hear his thoughts on our movie this week, which is The Natural. Maybe we'll get him to to, to send in some thoughts on that. But uh, in the meantime, the question for this week is a very simple one based on the movie, The Natural. How good a manager was Pop, <laughs> the manager of the New York Knights in The Natural? And I will let you begin your thoughts on how good a manager Pop was. So do you remember in Moneyball, um, the book Moneyball, uh, Michael Lewis describes um, Billy Bean's thoughts on Art Howe. And yeah. what he says about Art Howe is that he likes that Art Howe looks like a manager. He basically <laughs> sits on the top step of the dugout and he kind of stares inscrutably and sort of placidly straight forward and doesn't really, he doesn't really have his own thoughts and opinions. <laughs> and <laughs> he kind of does what Billy Bean wants him to do, but he kind of looks the part. It's like, a, it's this thing where it's like, oh, they, that guy knows what he's doing. He played played for the Astros in the seventies and eighties. He knows what he's doing. And, uh, and that I, I think about that a lot because there is something to be said for that. There's something to be said for a person. I mean, I think we sometimes elect politicians because they look like they should be politicians. Right. I think that most local newscasters main qualification to be a newscaster is that they look like a newscaster. <laughs> um, and I think that's what we have with pop here. I think we have yeah. in Wilford Brimley, a guy who just looks I, I think that he I don't think he's a good manager. I've there's scant evidence to suggest that he is strategically advanced in his thinking uh, or or really has anything going for him other than that. He looks like he has is a true baseball lifer. He is a Don Zimmer type guy who has just been been there forever. Um, he I mean, he does a lot of questionable things, I would say he doesn't get Roy Hobbs into a game until long after it's obvious that Roy Hobbs should be in the game. He also shaves with a straight razor, like in the clubhouse. <laughs> it's weird. That's weird. He does a lot of odd things. It doesn't stop uh, Roy Hobbs from seemingly like sort of falling for him in a like, I'm got to do this for pop. He actually says, I'm going to do this for pop a bunch of times, right? Like he has a like positive, he's very pro pop. They all are. I, I don't know why. I think, again, I think it's just like, oh, that guy deserves whatever whatever we're trying to do for him. <laughs> he just looks like a guy. He's just been there forever. He's a lifer. And so I, I don't think he's like strategically speaking, a good manager at all. I think that he looks the part and he has a, um, he has the effect that, that good managers ha have to have of getting his players to want to play hard for him. Yeah, I, I would say that's right. I would say inspired bit of casting to have Wilford Brimley play pop. I mean, Wilford, Brimley is that, you know, that, that sort of baseball lifer guy. So, so that's an inspired bit of casting. 
Uh, he's a horrendous manager. He's absolutely <laughs> horrendous manager. And and I, I I'd like just to point out a couple of things uh, uh, that 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 suggest how bad a manager is. One, you sort of brushed that already. So Roy Hobbs shows up. Apparently, his team is unplayably bad, unplayably bad. And you know they're they're in the, they're in last place. They're they're dismal. The scout sends him. Uh, Roy Hobbs, and we're by the way, we're going to come back to the natural before our podcast season's over because there is a there's a whole other natural question that we have to ask, but I'm not going to get into it today. Great. Um, but Roy Hobbs, you know, he has him, and then he won't even let him take batting practice. Doesn't even want to know. Doesn't even not even interested. He's he's he is this year's Kansas City Royals. A player is shows up. He gives him a roster spot. He says, oh, well, we'll honor his contract. Well, why? What, what, that, that makes no sense. So he gives him a spot on the roster. He's taking up a whole roster spot. Won't even let him take batting practice to see what the guy can do. So so that tells you right there he's a complete idiot. He's a complete idiot for when it comes to baseball. Then realizes, hey, Roy Hobbs is, is wow, look at that batting practice. Had the one amazing batting practice. But he can't play him because bump. Bailey is in right field, so he can't play Roy Hobbs as if there are not other outfield positions <laughs> available <laughs> to play. How does he not put Roy Hobbs in left field like the next day? Like what what does he have to lose? His team is absolutely terrible. And by the way, not being able to see through bump and how terrible bump is, is that's a real It's unforgivable, real yeah. It's unforgivable. It's a black mark. Uh, against him and he needs bump Bailey to die before he's going to finally put Roy Hobbs in the outfield. So that's a real negative as well. But the big one that I have is this, this, this there's not a lot of stra- uh, strategic, you know, there's not a lot that you can see uh, in the natural that would show you how good or bad a strategic manager he is until the very end. When he doesn't know what to do with Roy Hobbs, we don't know if Roy Hobbs is going to play in the last game. Right, he's he's in the hospital. He he had that one horrible batting, uh, you know, experience, practice experience where he started bleeding, whatever. We don't know if he's going to play. Pop is holding out hope until the very end that he's going to play, and he has him in the lineup. So he has him like hitting third or whatever in the lineup. Then he realizes Roy Hobbs is not going to play. He's been told Roy Hobbs is not going to play. He crosses out Roy Hobbs's name. And put somebody else third in the line. He doesn't switch around the whole lineup. He's just like, oh, Roy Hobbs is out. All right, let's move this other guy into side. Instead of you mean instead of taking your like cleanup hitter and moving him third and Yes, yeah. yes, and moving and whoever this loser is you weren't gonna play in the first place, putting that guy ninth, right? I mean, that's where that guy's gotta be hitting. So and I get it, I I understand it was, you know, it's it's you have to show like the visual of 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 Roy Hobbs and people wouldn't understand it, but I, that's a, that is, that is a pretty unforgivable managerial blunder to just take Roy Hobbs out of the lineup and then insert whoever you were going to play him, just put him third in the lineup. Right. Like, line if there's anyone else who can hit third in your, in your <laughs> one game playoff for the pennant, that guy's not already in your lineup somewhere. What are you doing? That, where, where have you been keeping this third hole, this three hole hitter who can just sub in for Roy Hobbs? It's right. Well, but the but the sad part is because Pop is such a terrible manager, that guy might have been on the bench. He just might not have even noticed him. I mean, it was it was Okay, here's I have two uh, ideas. Idea number one, yes. we remake the natural, but it's set in the same time period, but we do it where 
the manager is like a really nerdy, sabermetrically inclined guy <laughs> who like hits Roy Hobbs lead off because he has the highest OBP on the team and like has all sorts of unorthodox like bullpen usage ideas and stuff like that. And then you make um, you make Robert Duvall's character into just like a Paul D. Podesta type who's just like hectoring him about whether or not he's being sabermetrically inclined enough. And it's really boring and terrible and everybody hates it. That's idea number one. But Oh, I love I love that idea. I do I love that. Two, I just wanted is, to just throw it in there. Do you, do you know what his BAPIP is? That's not going to hold up. Roy Hobbs' numbers are not going to hold up. Guys, we do, like just because he's he has he has reverse splits. Don't you can't pitch him. He has reverse splits. Don't pitch him in this situation. There's just a lot of stuff like that. Okay, that's idea number one. But idea number two is uh, is the other issue. This just occurred to me. The is the other issue that you want to talk about in the future. Um, is it related to what happens in the World Series? Because. They don't, it's not the World Series, it's the pennant, right? It's the one, it's the playoff to get to the pennant. And so I I feel like maybe what happens, and this would be linked back to my previous uh, podcast pitch of doing sports movies that are really anticlimactic, <laughs> is either Roy Hobbs is fine and they just steamroll whoever they play in the World Series. Right, which is, which is hilarious. Right, or else uh, they they just get swept. And so, like, Pop, <laughs> Pop gets to keep the team. But Roy Hobbs is like ruled out with like, you know, a bleeding hole in his stomach and they, they just lose in like four or five games to the the St. Louis uh, Redbirds or whoever the fake team is in the NL. Yeah, I think that would be great. I think I I actually think that the idea of like, you know, uh, maybe we make it where so Hobbs shows up in this dramatic way. He's he said does that whole little thing with the farmer you know, oh, my dad wanted me to be a farmer. Oh, so touching. And then Pop goes, I'm not hitting you tonight. He's a lefty on the mound. So I'm not. You're, you're. <laughs> but I'm hoping we get a good pinch hitter opportunity for you late in the game. And then it never happens. They lose by four and there's no. And Hobbs never plays. Yeah. It's sort of, you know, like like a Buck Showalter moment of the end of the of the of the national. Fantastic. That would be good. That would be fantastic. I love it. All right. Well, we'll come back to the natural in uh, a couple of weeks because there is a, another very key uh, question uh, that uh, that survives from that movie. So let's go on to our draft segment to segment. More segments, more segments, more segments, more segments. <laughs> the good thing about our segments is every one of our segments, except for the draft, by the way, which a few people have noticed, has great music. They all have great music right. that go with them. We so should write a draft that, song. Yeah, we should. We should. We should write a draft song. I don't know how that would work, but we we should we should do that. So our draft this week is is I this might be my favorite draft idea because it's so unbelievably stupid. Um, we are drafting baseball positions, right? That's it. That's it. That's it. That's the whole draft. Uh, so I believe you had the first pick uh, last time. Well, you had the second pick last time. Uh, behind Nick, uh, Nick Offerman. So I will take the first pick. Uh, and with my first pick, I am going to take shortstop because shortstop is an awesome position in so many ways. It's, of course, where the best players always want to play. They always want to play shortstop. You, when you, as soon as you, uh, you know, the first thing that a little league manager does is like look around, go, okay, who can play shortstop? So it's, it's this awesome, uh, position that that requires great regular arm great range all of these other things from a defensive standpoint one of the things that i think is really cool about shortstop is for years i've never really fully followed this to be honest with you 
as a kid, the best player always played shortstop. I mean, you know, pitch shortstop, that was the whole, the whole double whammy. And so they always played shortstop. And then in the major leagues, when, when I was young and when you were, you know, probably when you were young as well, shortstop couldn't hit. Like that was the whole thing is that I guess the defensive, um, you know, requirements of the position were so intense that the ideal shortstop was a guy like Ozzie Smith, who eventually, you know, could help you offensively, did a few things, you know, he could run, he could, he could bunt, he could, he could kind of get on base. Uh, he was a, he was a pretty decent uh, offensive player in his prime. Uh, but he, but he clearly, he was only out there for his defense in large part. Mark Belanger couldn't hit at all, was a great shortstop. All of the shortstops were like that. They couldn't hit. It's like, what happened? Why were all the best players uh, from the minor, from little leagues all the way up? Why are none of these guys like great players? And now shortstops do everything. I mean, probably, you know, started going back to Ripken, but then that crazy A-Rod, Garcia Parra, Jeter, trio and now i mean you look around i mean this this year you look at lindor and correa and and uh uh seager when he's healthy and and on and on and on i mean these shortstops are just extraordinary extraordinary and it feels like it feels like base major leagues took a long time to catch up to this idea of the shortstop being the best player on the field but uh but that is that is again the case so number one overall pick Shorts. Yeah, it's the coolest position. I mean, it's the only yeah. real it's a it's the asymmetrical position too. everybody else is assigned to like left center, right, third, right. second, first place. catcher, yes. pitcher. Yes. And then there's just, just one guy who's just hanging out in this weird place. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's the coolest position by far. The best athlete in every youth baseball team plays shortstop for the most part. Like they, they now you're right. They can hit, they can feel, they can run, they hit for power. It's the coolest position. There's no question. And when you're a kid, you want to be a shortstop. Um, I'm going to go with the only other one that is even close, I think. Well, that's not true. There's two other ones that are close, but I'm going to go with center field. Um, center field is the shortstop of the outfield. Um, the, the, (laughs) like playing center field means something in a way that playing shortstop means something. Um, you know, it's Willie Mays. It's the reason is Willie Mays, right? It's like the, the, the guy who you would say in all likelihood is the greatest all around player. The fat, the guy who could run, hit, hit for power, throw, do everything that you could possibly do on a baseball field. That guy plays center field. Um, so it's not as quite as cool as shortstop, I think, but like they cover insane amounts of ground when center field is being played. Well, it's the most impressive thing defensively. I would say on a, on a diamond, like the Jackie Bradley jr, Kevin Pillar, Kevin Kiermeyer, those guys, Mike Trout, even Gary Matthews jr or whatever. Like when those guys, Ken Griffey jr, like, when those guys do insane things defensively, it's the most impressive thing. They seem to be, it's one guy standing in the middle of this enormous football field of, of turf and like nothing, the ball never hits the ground. And it, it, it's just so wonderful. So that's my number one pick center field. It's, it's, it's right. I think it's, I think those are the two best positions. They're the two, the two most famous. It's, it is interesting. And this is, this is sort of the point I was trying to make before. It is interesting the this the list of incredible center fielders is at least until the last 30 years way more impressive than the list of of incredible shortstops i mean you know you you go back pre ripken and you know you go back to honus wagner or whatever but after that it's it's like there are a lot of yeah very good players but not players you would necessarily consider 
you know, top 10, top 20 all time players and, and, uh, but center field's filled with them, right? Mays and DiMaggio and Mantle and Cobb and, and, uh, speaker and, and, uh, you know, on and on and on and on. And, and so center fielder in many ways, from a major league perspective, center field has been the marquee position, yeah. right? And, and there is nothing because a great defensive play at shortstop is incredible. I mean, it's just absolutely incredible, but there is nothing like seeing a fly ball hit the center field and that guy on the run, and you have no idea if he's going to get there. I mean, th- those plays don't happen that often. Well, because it's they a- hang the ball hangs in the air for like four seconds. It's, it's you have right. you don't have right when a ball's ripped to short, it happens or it doesn't, and it's over in a, in like a third of a second. But yes, like when the, yeah. those drives into the into the out, I was at Fenway for the catch that Austin Jackson made oh. off of uh, Hanley Ramirez when he actually flipped over into the bullpen. Flipped over the and fence, it's the most yeah. incredible thing I've ever seen live. In sports, it's the most incredible thing I've ever seen live. You just get the ball is just like soaring away. It's just like um, it's attached to a rocket ship and it's just flying over the horizon. And then this insane hero comes flying like a <laughs> superhero and like like it somehow tracks it down. It's just it's so wonderful. It's the most wonderful thing in baseball, I think. Yeah, I think I agree. I agree. I was, that Jim Edmonds catch. Yeah, exactly. Over the show, like it's when you watch a shortstop play, as great as they are. I mean, some of those, some of those. I mean, to this day, you watch Lindor or any of those guys, but some of those Aussie plays where he just bounces off the turf and makes the throw, you just you're just mind blown. But then you see him on replay and. And you can sort of break it down in your mind. It doesn't become less impressive, but you can break it down in your mind. Some of those outfield catches, you watch them, no matter how many times you watch them, you're like, how did he do that? Like, how the heck did that happen? So excellent pick, number one, uh, your number one pick. My number two pick is, you know, I went back and forth on whether or not I think this is the second best or, you know, in this, in that realm, or it's near the bottom, but I'm going to take it now because it's on my mind. Uh, I'm going to take catcher with my second pick. Um, and part of it is in my mind, I just did a piece. So I am doing for my blog. I'm going to go ahead and give my blog a little, a little, uh, hit here. Uh, if you'd like to join over to Joe blogs, I am doing the hundred greatest baseball players ever. Uh, and also doing several other series at the same time, uh, would love people to come along. And I just did number 98 all time on the list, which is, I put Carlton Fisk as the 98th best uh, player uh, in baseball history, major league baseball history. And so I went, went back and just kind of watched a bunch of Fisk stuff, read a bunch of Fisk stuff and boy, a catcher like that, who just like, I mean, and and it's, it's harder to do now just because managers have taken over and, and general managers have taken over so much of the game. But back then, particularly catchers just ran the whole game, just every single thing that happened in the game, the catcher had something to do with, whether it was calling the pitch or or intimidating other players or whatever. And you have a catcher like that who can hit and call games and throw and do all these other things. It's like it's like there's never a minute in a baseball game that you're not at least there. There's not some tiny percentage of your mind thinking about the catcher. Oh, uh, it's, it's the hardest position. To play. Yeah, this it's the obvious choice. You've made the you've you've made a yeah. good and obvious choice it, for many reasons. Number all the stuff you said, but then also there's all sorts of cool things. Like he's the only guy who faces the other way on the field. Right. He's the only guy who sets up in foul ter- territory. He's the only guy by rule who's allowed to set up in foul territory. 
Um, right. He like when there's a guy on first and a guy on third, the catcher comes out and stands in front of the home in front of home plate and looks at all of the people on the team and does some <laughs> weird thing where he pats his head and touches his chest and his left arm and then his right arm and 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 it's just like this dude's in control. Like this guy, like this guy just knows what's up. And, and uh, if you have a good catcher who is good at pitch framing and blocking wild pitches and, um, and, uh, and, you know, blocking the plate and like throwing guys out, like, I mean, throwing a, throwing out a base runner trying to steal is an incredible skill. It's, it's an incredible. incredible, like rally killing skill. It's like if you have that guy in your team, it's just like, and if that guy can hit, I mean, for goodness sakes. And then you have this reverse thing where when you think you have that guy, like Gary Sanchez, and then it turns out Gary Sanchez can't catch the ball and doesn't really care if he does or not, <laughs> and also maybe can't hit that well. Like the Yankees went from having like the best, the most valuable player in all of baseball, it looked like to having a guy who's hitting like 185 this year and like has has actually actively lost them games with his lackadaisical defense. I mean, you see yeah. the difference. That's like it is it literally it's night and day. It's it's a really remarkable thing the difference in that team. It's so true. It's so true. I also love that it's also all sorts of great stuff the catchers get to do. I mean, obviously the the all the all the gear they wear very very cool. I love the you know, sort of uh, catcher who comes up to warm up the pitcher while the other catcher is like putting on his gear because he he just hit or whatever. So I love that guy. I love the fact that sometimes they wear the the knee pads or the you know the shin guards or whatever, and sometimes they don't. And I love that everything. And plus, the catcher is the one guy that's like it's acceptable for him to go out and talk to the pitcher. Like sometimes you'll see the third baseman walk over and you're like, just go back. You're the, you're a third baseman. You, you have no, you have no <laughs> what rights are you here. Saying? You have no rights. Exactly. Get back and just get ready to get hit by a line drive. Come on, let's move out there. Uh, but the catcher gets to go out and there are great stories about it. There's a great story about Tony Pena once smacking uh, Roger Clemens in the head with his glove. Cause he was all not listening to him or whatever. There's, Catchers yeah, also. there's a reason so that a lot of catchers become managers, right? It's like it's the on the on field manager. I mean, you you've made yeah. the two best choices. I was hoping you would slip up and do something insane and take uh, you know left field or something, but you didn't. That's fine. You're gonna win the draft. It's okay. I made my piece of it. Um, just just okay. to just to like play defense a little bit. I guess I'm gonna take starting pitcher, which is the only other kind of unique position yeah, on the field. One. You know, it's the baseball is a weird game. The defense puts the ball in play. It's the only sport where that happens. Um, and the the guy who is doing that is the pitcher. He is alone. That's what's so um, that's what, like baseball is a, is a team game that comes down to individual matchups. And the most important person thus is the guy who is responsible for all of the individual matchups and on the defense. And that's the pitcher, a, a great starting pitcher. You've seen like the what happens when you have a great starting pitcher, like let's say you have Chris sale or you have Clayton Kershaw or whatever, and your team just knows they're going to win 90% of the games that that guy pitches. Right. You know, if you play 600 ball um, as a baseball team, you, you make the playoffs generally speaking, right? There's very few 600 teams that don't make the playoffs. So if you have that true ACE, and you have a five-man rotation, what you're basically saying is all we have to do is play 500 when this guy doesn't pitch. Right. And the right. psychology, I think, of that is so powerful 
that you see these teams that are like, we're fine. Like if they lose three in a row, it's like, <laughs> we're fine because we're going to win tomorrow. And then we just need to win one more game and then we will basically be back on track. And uh, it's because of this weird system where there's 162 games and you need to win like 57 and a half percent of them to be one of the better teams in the league. And so when you have a guy who wins all of his games, or at least gives you a chance to win all of his games, it's the, it's the best thing that you can have on a team. It's why Clayton Kershaw and Zach Greinke and these guys make a million dollars every time they pitch. It's why even David right. price makes a million dollars every time he pitches. It's why Chris sale is going to make probably $7 million every time he pitches starting next year. <laughs> these guys are so valuable to the game. So I'll, I'll go pitcher and starting pitcher number two. It's, it's, it's the right pick and it's, and it's a, and it's, it's absolutely right. Th by the way, just yet another reason to, to fully enjoy the fact that the Mets have a losing record when Jacob DeGrom <laughs> pitches. I mean, that's hard to do. Legitimately hard to do. Legitimately almost impossible to do, to, to have a losing record when, when a guy's given up one run a game, basically. Um, excellent pick though. The one big question though, with the starting pitcher is what is the future of the starting pitcher. It's almost like, it's almost like asking what is the future of newspapers? You know what I mean? It's like, you know, there will always be some starting pitchers that, that will be, you know, huge factors, the Chris sales and this, but you do wonder if teams, because people always talk about it in extremes or like, Oh, the starting pitcher will die and whatever, but that won't happen. But will teams start going with two man or three man rotations where they fill the other two or three slots with some version of a bullpen thing. Like, I will, will, what is the future? Yeah. yeah. What is the future of the fourth? I think, you're, I think there's going to be, they're going to crunch some numbers and do a calculation, which is basically if you're a starting pitcher, if your whip is below a certain level, you are the kind of person who can pitch five, six, seven innings. And if your whip is not right. below that level, or it's like, you know, they'll, they'll do calculations about what happens second time through third time through fourth time through whatever. Right. And then it'll be like, well, then we're not going to pitch you the third time through the lineup. You'll be a starting pitcher who we're, uh, that we're trying to get four innings out of, let's say. Or right. we're just going to pitch right. you until you get through the lineup twice. Or And it doesn't matter whether that's, you know, it could be six innings if you're throwing a perfect game. Or it could be two innings if you get knocked around. Whatever the situation is, we're going to base our... Uh, our like usage of you of starters on their on the actual numbers, and we're going to say we don't care, and we're going to stock our bullpen with guys with like five guys who throw ninety nine, and then five or six or seven guys who don't, but are like basically converted starters who can go two or three innings per appearance. That's my guess. I think that's right. I think some version of that is is you know I'm, I'm not going to say inevitable because the game could entirely shift in a different way, but. Uh, that's sure where everything is pointing because it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense now to have five people that you treat as, as uh, starters in the same right. way. Like there's no reason for you to treat your fourth starters the same as your one. It's it's, they're just, they're fundamentally different. All right. Those are the four, in my mind, the four best positions pretty much by far. So I think from here on in, it's going to be a fairly quick, uh, fairly quick uh, term because I don't think there's a significant difference in the last uh, few positions, but I'm going to take third base uh, with my third pick just because uh, nothing cooler than watching a third baseman make some sort of diving play. I mean, that's as cool as watching a center fielder do it. I think it's even cooler in some ways than watching a, uh, a shortstop do it. 
watching a diving play get up and make that that long throw across the infield, uh, watching a Nolan Arenado play, you know, Adrian Beltre, uh, then going back, the Brooks Robinsons and all those, those guys. It's, it's amazing. It's amazing. And it's the scariest position. I think it's even scarier in some ways than catcher, even though catchers uh, certainly get hurt more and get, you know, tagged more, whatever. There's that just happens. That's sort of the natural progression of, of what it is to be a catcher third base. You just don't know when the next guy is going to hit some unbelievably insane line drive. At yeah. You, you know, and uh, so it's a scary position. So it's awesome. So I'm going. No, with once base. again, you have thwarted my uh, <laughs> my attempt to catch up. I mean, it's the it's the only position left on the board really that matters to me because it has yeah. it has two it has two excellent elements to it. The play when you're going to your right, you grab the hot shot down the line, and then falling oh, into foul territory, yeah. you have to throw across <laughs> your body and oh, make the one, longest yes. throw yes. in the diamond to get the guy out. That's the most exciting infield plays in the game, except for the bunt when you're charging as oh, hard as you can bunt. and you got to barehand the ball <laughs> and whip it over. The, the The stakes are so high for both of those plays because especially in the bunt, when you're charging in, if you make a bad throw, that guy's on at least second, or if you're playing in Oakland, right? he's on third. Uh, and, <laughs> and the, the, like, it's like, the getting the guys who were amazing at that, the Arenados and the Beltres, um, and Machado when he played at third, those guys will it's like you're stopping a single and potentially a double or triple. And yeah. if you, uh, uh, so you're like, you're you, the difference between the potential outcome if you're bad at it and the actual outcome if you're good at it is enormous. It's by, by far higher than any other infield play, I would say. Those two things. If you can't glove that ball to your right, that ball is at least a double usually. And if you throw and if you make a bad throw on either one, it's a double or a triple. So it's it's the highest stakes. The two highest stakes plays on the infield are are those two plays. Like there's no other. You know, I guess you could say the same thing is true of a first baseman, but there are way fewer balls it seems because there's you know right-handers tend to pull the ball down the line. There's more right-handed hitters, so like you, the, the the chances are a lot higher that you are going to affect your team uh, in one way or the other for your third baseman. No, it's great. That's it's it's a hundred percent right. I mean, those are high impact plays, and excellent point on the bunt. That seeing oh. seeing a guy barehand and then do that little barehand throw in one motion play. Yeah, the oh. the submarine almost like underhand throw. It's the best. Love it. And and it's and it's one of those things because all I I mean for years I've been railing against the bunt because I think it's a bad play. But I don't want the bunt to go away. I want people to bunt because I want to be able to see those plays. So yeah. so you know we're always in a mix with baseball about what the smart thing is but what the entertaining thing is and and uh, nothing more entertaining than the bunt. Well, to me, the rest of these positions are pretty whatever. Who cares? I'm going to take second base because second base is fun. You get to be in on double plays, which is fun. Like uh, it, no one expects anything of second base, really. You know, (laughs) the guys who play second, it's like, eh, eh, fine. Like if they, it's like a bone. What what you want out of a second baseman is like a really good defender who he has a 700 OPS and like steals a 15 bases a year and anything above that, like the year Dustin Pedroia won the MVP, right. well, he probably shouldn't have, but the year he did win the MVP was so amazing. It was just so incredible to see a five foot, six inch tall second <laughs> baseman 
play the way he played offensively and defensively. He hit cleanup when Manny went down. He hit like, you know, monstrous home runs that the, like that where, you know, David Ortiz was waiting for him, right. which was just like the size inversion of that was so funny. Like Ortiz waiting for Pedroia at home plate because Pedroia at homeward was so wonderful. Uh, it's just it's a cool position. It's not it's not like it's it's mini shortstop. And uh, and you you you're in on the action a lot. You're tagging guys out when they're trying to steal. You get to die for balls like it's just like it's not as fun because the throw isn't as long. But I would say that second base is the only position that most people, most normal people, when they imagine themselves having to play professional baseball, you put yourself at second. <laughs> I do. I've always done that. I actually think it's an, I think it's a good pick. It's an, I think it's an underrated position in this way. If you think about it, Jose Altuve is second baseman. Javi Baez is a second baseman. Like the, yeah. like the most fun guys in baseball are second baseman now. And uh, so that's really, really cool. It's, it's a cool position. It it's really is shortstop without the throw. And, and uh, so it's very, very cool. And, and there have been amazing, amazing second basemen, you know, and there are now, but there have been through the years. Uh, you could make a pretty good argument that pre like in the, in the period of time, forget about old, old times. Cause I've, you know, I'm, I'm doing this as I'm doing my baseball hundred and doing the top hundred and I'm looking, you can make a pretty good argument that as a player, Joe Morgan was better than any shortstop, not only of his era, but, but really going back, like, like you, you really second base from after dead ball between dead ball and Ripken, you would say, I'd say if you'd said, okay, you can have any shortstop or second baseman, you know, there'd be those that would take Rogers Hornsby as second baseman, but I would take Joe Morgan um, over any of them. So in a lot of ways, shortstop is, is, at least as cool as, as I mean, second base is at least as cool as shortstop. Um, so I think it's actually a really good pick. It's a, I think it's a little bit of a steal for you at three. Um, with my fourth pick, there's, there's only one choice left and it's not because it's that great a position. It's not, but if you're going to be stuck with what we have left, uh, you got to take right field basically because of Roberto Clemente. I mean, that's almost like the only reason to do it. I mean, I guess Ishiro brings the same thing that throw from right field to third to home is great too, but to third in particular, awesome. Awesome. If that throw is like, if you nail that throw and get some guy trying to go first to third, first of all, it's a game changing play. But second of all, it is really cool to watch that ball just go across the infield and just perfectly go into the third baseman's glove and, and watch him put the tag down. It's a great play. Left field doesn't have a play like that. So I think of what we have left, right field is pretty clear the the best choice. Yeah, it is. And uh, for just because I don't want to take first base, I'm going to take left field. <laughs> uh, it's it's not it's not as good, but there's also like you can get behind left field in theory. There's Ted Williams. There's sure. some great left fielders. There's Barry Bonds. There's uh, you know there's guys who who. It you, you used to say you stick your worst player or your worst uh, fielder in right field. I think you probably stick your worst fielder in left field, right? Yeah, These yeah. days, yeah, I think I would think. Um, just just because, like, uh, you know, it doesn't really matter. Um, it's like uh, it's it it that the throw from right to third or to to home is um is way more exciting than anything in left. The there are some memorable 
left field plays the bonds throw home on the Sid Bream. Yes. Uh, throw. That was a great, that's a great play. There's some like, there's some fame. There's some, obviously in the history of baseball, there's amazing plays at every position, but like, there's nothing really great about it. I'm just taking, cause I don't want to take first base. No, that's right. That's right. Well, there's the Andy Chavez play in left field. That was awesome. And, uh, left field does have incredibly cool players. I mean, you mentioned Ted Williams and Barry Bonds. Um, but Yaz was a left fielder. I mean, that's yeah. that's really cool. Left field, by the way, at Fenway Park, just just that park is yeah. Awesome. I, honestly, that's, that's awesome. probably why I'm doing it. It's because it has a special it has a special meaning at my home stadium. Right. So, like, uh, you right. know, it has it goosed up a little bit for me personally. Well, but but honestly, if we were picking like positions only at Fenway Park, not any other place, left field would have gone higher. Left field because left field and I think left field in, in at Fenway, that's really cool. The way you have to play the wall, the yeah. you know that's there's there's a lot of cool stuff, but it's the only part where it's cool. Every other park it stinks, but that park it's like really really cool to be a left fielder. So here you go. So I am uh, with my fifth pick. I am not going to take first base. I'm totally just not going to do it. So I'm going to take pinch hitter as my uh, as my fifth choice. Uh, Pinch hitter is like, we don't have them anymore. Not too many of them. They used to be really cool. Like the guys who were like designated, they would have pinch hitter. I remember Rusty Staub one year, like had PH on his baseball card. Well, there was also like a special tops card. I think there was like, either he had set the record for all time pinch hits or pinch hits in a season. I can't remember one or the other. So that's awesome. That is all. They used to be really cool that these guys who were like, that's their, they were their specialty. They were pinch hitters. Um, and, and the great thing about them is you look at them now and you look at their numbers and they're like, they couldn't hit. Right. I mean, they like pinch hitters. Like they would hit 230 as pinch hitters and you'd be like, oh, Danny Heap, there was a true pinch hitter. <laughs> and, and they really weren't true pinch hitters at all. Um, but, it's awesome. You've, okay. It's like, again, one of the sad parts of baseball today is the roster construction where they're all pitchers. So you don't have that guy on the bench where like, Oh, here it is. There's a man on second, ninth inning, bring out the pinch hitter. Like the guy who, who just might bloop a single to, to tie the game. Somebody you could sort of count on in that uh, circumstance. Somebody who liked that feeling that, uh, that moment it's uh it's sort of gone away. There's not a whole lot left to it, but it's still pretty cool. If you, if on those rare days where one of the starters is not in the starting lineup and the game comes in late and then you bring in Bryce Harper to pinch hit in the eighth inning, it's kind of cool. So better than first base. I'm taking pinch hitter. Yeah, I suppose, I suppose it is. It's, it's a little questionable. It's not really a position. Yeah, uh, no, it used to be. It used to be. Yeah, fair enough. PH, a little pH. Um, I'll, I, you've, you've now given me. You, I'm going to catch up a little bit at the very end here because I'm going to. I'll take designated hitter. If you're going to take oh, pincher, I'll take designated yeah, hitter. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, some of the very it's they 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 only play half the game, and for that reason, people refuse to allow them into the Hall of Fame, <laughs> 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 which is very dumb. But, uh, you know, Edgar Martinez and David Ortiz and yeah. J.D. Martinez and a lot of these guys are going to go down in history as some of the greatest hitters who ever lived. And it's a position, like it or not, it's a thing. They didn't it's not their fault. And as a result, they get they get um, maligned unfairly. Um, but 
the the years that like Ortiz is your DH or the years that Edgar Martinez is your DH, um, you are so happy when that player comes up if you're a fan of that team. It's just it, it having a great DH. I mean, it, what's very funny is when interleague play, when the National League comes over to American League ballparks and they have to have someone be a DH and it's just some scrub that you've never heard of before <laughs> <laughs> because they don't construct their rosters that way. And you just see the immense advantage that the American League has in terms of scoring runs. They take the worst hitter in the lineup and they turn him into hopefully the best hitter in the lineup. It's like a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's really good for the game. It's good for offense. It's good for excitement. It's good for like prolonging people's careers. Um, so yeah, I, uh, again, a little bit of a home field thing for me because of Ortiz, but I'll pick DH. No, that's, that was the right pick. That was, that was the right pick. I probably should have gone with DH. Uh, but, but look, the DH, the thing that's great about the DH is it inspires such astonishingly angry feelings from people everywhere. Like the, the, whether you're pro DH or anti, there no other position has that. No other position has like, I want to start a bar argument about a baseball position. It's the only one that you can actually start one with. Um, which by the way, the idea of the bar argument, like that as a as sort of a trope, as like a as like a thing, like that do do people get into bar arguments? Is that like a real thing? I don't think that's a real thing, is it? Correct. It is not a real thing. <laughs> It's so funny though because I just you always have that in your mind like oh you know if you guys are arguing over something in a bar like who's doing that that's not happening I don't think not about I think it's like from the days of like let's go down to Tooth Shores and (laughs) and talk to and maybe Joe DiMaggio will be there like it's from that era like it's from the it's from a way bygone era yeah it is so anyway but the dh by the way so give me your official stance as long as we'll have this give me your official stance on the dh and the dh's role in baseball oh i'm so pro well i know you're pro but i mean are you pro like do you want it across all of baseball do you like the way it is now i Uh, i mean the, the asymmetrical thing is funny to me like i don't know if i like it or don't like it i think it's funny and it and it's very baseball to have this weird it's this ancient sport that dates back a hundred and you know twenty five hundred and forty years, whatever it is, and they can't get it together. <laughs> Just like <laughs> everything's a little off, like they can't. You know, there's still ten years ago there was a tie in the All Star game. They just like they'll always kind of be tripping over them themselves because the the game is so old and there's so many rules and it's so um, it's so messy. But I like that it's asymmetrical. I think it's funny. It's it's asymmetricalness, asymmetricality is part of the game in the same way that like no two stadiums dimensions are the same. So a home run, you know, there, there are Giancarlo Stanton hit a home run to right field in Yankee stadium a couple weeks ago that had like a 27% hit probability because it was like a little pop fly that went 315 feet and just scraped the top of the wall in right field. And in no other stadium, is that a hit? or a, much less a home run. And, and I like that. I mean, I hated that particular instance of it, but I like <laughs> the fact that the stadiums are weird and that you can hit a 420 foot ball to center field in Comerica and it's an out and you can hit a 310 foot ball in, in, uh, at Fenway or Yankee stadium or, or in, uh, admit it made. And it's a home run. I think that's fun. That's part of why that's, that's part of why the game is frustrating and maddening and exciting and fun. So I like that personally, I think the way it is right now is perfect. If the National League 
went to the DH, I would be like, yeah, of course, of course, that's what you're doing. <laughs> Why would you not do that? But I kind of like that it's weird and asymmetrical. Yeah, I'm kind of with you. I'm kind of with you. I think of of all of the um, of all of the weird quirks of the game, I I kind of dig that. I'll, I'll tell you the, the other thing. If you're going to if if the National League does ever take on the DH, this is my view on the National League. The National League ever takes on the DH, which, yeah, again, if they did, you'd be like, well, yeah, obviously you did. Um, then get rid of the National League. Then just don't have an American National League. But split it up in a whole other way. The only thing that's separating the American National League right now is the DH. It's the only thing that anybody can point to about the difference between the two leagues. So if you want to uh, make baseball symmetrical or more symmetrical and and have it so everybody has to play with the DH, it's more fair, it's, the competition will be better, then then split up, then totally blow up the whole league thing and try to try to make that a cool new way to 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 do baseball. Because as of right now, I think that's the only reason to have the National League is the fact that they don't have a DH. Yeah, and tradition, right? Which baseball also cares about maybe too much. Yeah, probably a little too much. And and but it's but it feels it feels like I'm all for tradition. I'm a traditionalist by nature, but it feels like it's holding the game back because they're still building everything around this American and National League thing that I think most people are kind of like over. They just don't, don't it doesn't there's no there's nothing special about it. Like purely say from the All-Star games perspective, there's nothing special about the fact you're an American leaguer or a National Leaguer other than you play in the league with the DH or not the DH. Otherwise, heck, you were probably in the American League last year, and now you're in the National League. I mean, this it, the movement is, has changed the whole dynamic of that whole thing. So anyway, excellent, uh, excellent uh, draft as always. And uh, so now we, we go to our final segment, one last meaningless thing to end this meaningless thing. It's one last meaningless thing. sports and we draft things we know like how beaches are terrible places to go no hot fruit for michael nor diet coke for joe the podcast it's one last and you get to start you get to do our one last meaningless thing um, first of all, I would like to commend us um, for keeping this podcast to a tight 90 minutes. <laughs> Considering all the segments we had to go through, I would say that's as good. That's as well as we're ever going to do. That's that's about it. <laughs> um, my one last meaningless thing is uh, there are mosquitoes in Los Angeles now. What? Yeah, man. The Like from the time I moved here. It was like, oh, the one of the real benefits is it's really cool at night and it's really dry. And so you don't have mosquitoes in the way yeah. you do on the East Coast. And this year, my daughter started saying, I am itchy, I'm itchy, I'm itchy. And I was like, those look like mosquito bites, but it can't be because we live in Los Angeles. <laughs> and then I was like, are they spider bites? Like, what's going on? And then my son started getting them. And then I started getting them right around my ankles. And I looked online and it was like, yeah, guess what? There's been like a shift in the climate uh, and they the mosquitoes have like migrated here from somewhere from Mexico or something. And they have figured out a way to breed in the limited water that standing water that exists in California, Southern California. Now we just straight up have <laughs> mosquitoes. And it's like 
uh, it's crazy. Like it really was one of the main benefits of not living here in a tiny way, or I'm sorry, of living here as opposed to the East Coast is you didn't deal with that in the summer. In the summer growing up in New England, I mean, you're just every, you know, you're covered in mosquito bites everywhere you go. There's mosquitoes, mosquitoes, mosquitoes. You move to Los Angeles, nothing. And it's so great. And now, well, thanks, climate change. Now we just have freaking mosquitoes. And by the way, they're tiny. They're smaller. They're like half the size. So you can't even see them. So you don't, you don't, you don't feel them biting you. You don't see them. They go for the ankles. Or it's a specific breed of mosquito that, that, um, and they, I think they literally call them like ankle biters or something. And, <laughs> and we just now, like my daughter's legs are covered in mosquito bites. So my one last meeting, this thing is what the hell? <laughs> That is unacceptable. Absolutely unacceptable. There are so few sort of sort of karma benefits to living to LA, right? There's so few. I mean, there obviously LA has its many charms, but there are so few things that like on a day-to-day-to-day basis that you go, boy, I'm really glad that I live in LA so I don't have to deal with this because they have whatever this is, LA has more of it than anybody else. How could they? How could they allow mosquitoes? Who Who is the mayor of L.A. that would allow mosquitoes to get in there? I I don't think it's the mayor that's the problem. <laughs> yeah, I would imagine that's right. I would imagine that's right. All right. Well, since your one last meaningless thing uh, was directly um, related to bugs, I'm going to go ahead and do that as well. Actually, I don't know if they're bugs or not, but. Uh, Suddenly, out of nowhere, about a month ago, three weeks ago, we started getting ants in the house, like tons and tons and tons of these little itty bitty tiny ants in the house. And and I mean, they just they just got into the kitchen somehow, and and they weren't they weren't around food. It, it had nothing. They were just walking on the little counter by the sink. There was somehow. There was some opening, I guess, in the in the house. So these little tiny ants came in. So of course, you know, we don't know what to do. So we we call uh, somebody to come in to, to check out what the heck is going on. Why are all these ants getting in the house? And they did something I did not believe uh, existed. I didn't know this happened. <laughs> they put out ant traps. Have you ever heard of ant traps? Sure. Wow, why am I completely unaware of the ant trap? <laughs> I have no idea. And they're tiny. Yeah. They're little itty bitty like little mouse traps, but for ants that they put out there and they look stupid and they they I don't they're they're not effective. As it turned out, basically there was a branch that was touching the house. I, I didn't they, they explained what the, the deal was. So we got it worked out. But but they, I just noticed all these little tiny ant traps, and I was thinking about the person who invented those, and like you know, trying to figure out, okay, well, how, what is the perfect way to trap an ant uh, or a series of ants? And and like the mouse trap is like kind of obvious, right? It's like you you put a little piece of cheese, and then you have the little gigantic, you know, whatever uh, thing that just comes over the top, the gigantic guillotine that basically comes crashing down on the on the mouse. I get it, but these little tiny ant traps, they're so small. I was Well, I mean, the ones that I'm aware of are ones they're not traps. They're not like tiny little guillotines or something. They I believe what they are is poison that poison food basically 
where the ants take the poison food and they bring it back to their colony because that's what they're trained to do uh, biologically. And then they basically, it's like a, it's like a booby trap where they grab this poison and bring it back to their colony and it poisons the colony. Wow. I, I, I think these are little ant traps that actually trap the ant inside. I think I don't be. know. I don't know that they're all I know is they're like, they're smaller than like a matchbox. Uh, they're tiny, tiny little things. They're like they're like a quarter of the size of a matchbox and they're just, we put them all along the windowsill and then, and I don't think they work. I mean, it seemed like it was it. The reason I'm bringing up it is one last meaningless thing is I really wanted to just ask you, is this some sort of scam? The guy just pulled on us where he's like, Oh, I'll get you the, that's, it's like going, uh, you know, it's like going, uh, whatever, uh, the, the whole hunting thing where you, you take people out and then leave them in the field. Like I kind of thought like this guy's just like, Oh, let me bring you my ant traps. And he just yeah. puts a little, they tiny look pot. like um, these ant traps look like uh, nickels, but they're not, <laughs> you're going to think they're nickels, but they're, they're really not. I'm going to leave them here and they'll look like I just put four nickels on your windowsill. <laughs> But trust me, you'll totally get rid of your ants. That will be $7,000. They're total ant traps. It's like amazing. It's amazing. So anyway, that's, there, there we go. So a fully, a full insect, uh, are ants insects, by the way, do they count as the, yeah, I believe so. I think they're insects. Yeah. All right. So a full insect, one last meaningless thing. So we did it. All 447 of our segments. We got through every one of them in a tight one hour and 37 minutes. <laughs> Our people could expect no less, could expect no less. So as always, Mike, thank you. Thanks for having me.